Luke chapter 19, starting from verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and, they sa- and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for, my, for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. The next reading comes from 1 Corinthians. Chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting from verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. For if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is the word of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness and the fact that you are a speaking God and you reveal yourself to us. 
and you speak through your word. And so, Father, we pray today, speak. Holy Spirit, help us to understand this word, to grapple with it, to be challenged by it, that this word may open our hearts and pierce our souls, that it may bring comfort to those of us who are seeking to be faithful, that it may challenge us for those who realize, for those among us who realize that this speaks a harder, more pointed word. Ultimately, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will take this word, apply it to our hearts and help us to live it out, that we might trust Jesus and live solely for him. For we ask this for our blessing, for the glory of your son, Jesus, and our joy together in Jesus' name. Amen. How did your investments go in 2021? At the start of every new year, whether it be a calendar year or a financial year, uh, we tend to have a habit of doing a stock take, don't we? We we have a think about how life has been, how our investments have gone in the year. And I'm not just talking about our financial investments, although that is part of the question. But how about our other investments? Investment of our time and our energy into things like our schoolwork, our family life, our home life, our projects at work and jobs. What was the, last, was the last year a good year of investment for you? And what fruit came out of that year? Came out of those extra hours of work and study, that extra time you put into the family? Or did you see some things start to go backwards? You know, as we begin this year, 2022, the 2nd of January, I can't think of a better parable from Jesus to reflect upon. So with all the celebrations over, the holidays now beginning to wind down for some of us and getting back into the rhythms and routines of life, a big question comes to us from Jesus, a big question from Jesus that we must all answer. In 2022, in 2022, and in the years ahead, what are you going to be investing in? Where are you going to be pouring your energy and effort, and crucially, Will it pay off? See, as we head into our passage today, we begin by noticing that everyone around Jesus thought that payday was here. They had been spending time with Jesus. They had been watching his miracles. They had been listening to his teaching. Uh, Jesus had just been with Zacchaeus and said, today salvation has come to this house. Uh, Those around Jesus had invested a lot of time and energy into following him. And now as they were getting closer to Jerusalem, they believed that payday was coming. Jesus, the king, the son of David, was among them. He was going to enter Jerusalem. He was going to take charge. He was going to throw the Romans out. He was going to establish his throne and reign supreme and bring Israel back to preeminence among the nations. You could say that expectations were skyrocketing. And into this moment, we see Jesus speak. See, everything so far in Luke chapter, uh, from beginning before Luke chapter 19, has almost felt like a trailer to the big blockbuster, the summer blockbuster movie. And now here was Jesus about to enter into, into Jerusalem, and they were grabbing their popcorn and taking their seats and waiting for the fireworks to happen. So Jesus tells them this parable. And notice from the very outset why he's telling them this parable. Verse 11. And as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, the purpose of this parable is stated for us up front, right here at the front. 
Jesus tells this story because he wants everyone listening to know that there will be a delay. The kingdom of God, the full global destruction of sin and the renewal of the whole world, the kingdom of God that was that kingdom of God was not going to be appearing as soon as they thought. Yes, Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, but no, the full glorious kingdom of God was not here just yet. Now, it's worth clarifying. So when Jesus first appeared in the gospel, remember the first thing he says in the gospel of Mark, repent and believe for the kingdom of God has come near. Right? When Jesus says is the kingdom of God has come near, he's saying that Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. And so when he says the kingdom is drawn near, well, he's right. He's correct. God's king was here. He was close. But in the New Testament, there is a concept that keeps running through, a big thread that keeps running through, which is this idea of the now and the not yet. Right? God's kingdom is now close to you, but also at the same time, it is not yet here. And this parable is saying that the kingdom of God is not yet here. Jesus is teaching that even though he's the king and even though he's drawing near to Jerusalem, the king's capital city, the kingdom of God is not quite here yet. There is going to be a delay. So Jesus gives them this parable. And he gives them this parable to teach them about what should happen in the meantime, what should happen as that, as that delay carries on. And he picks up on a a well-known story at the time to help make his point. So read with me again as he picks up this parable in verse 12. So he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, as you can see here, there's there's a nobleman who heads off into another country. This is a long, distant, faraway country, so this is going to be quite a delay in travel. Uh, And he's going there to be handed the kingdom. A bunch of his servants, uh, he gives a bunch of his servants before he leaves a, a sum of money, and he wants them to get busy with it. And then you notice in verse 14 that you've got a bunch of citizens who hate the nobleman, who don't want him to be king, and they send off a delegation right after him to plead uh, that they do not want this man to reign over them. Now, there's a background to that story there, to the citizens hating the king, and we'll get to that in a second. But you'll see as well as, you've read, as we read out before that the bulk of the parable is focused on the servants and how they are tasked with doing business for the king and how they are faithful or faithless to the job and how the king responds. If you know your Bibles well enough, you may have noticed that as you read this, that this echoes another parable in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 25. The details of these two parables are very similar, but there are very key distinctives as well. And Luke has a particular different emphasis uh, as well. So in Matthew's parable, uh, the, the servants are each given a different amount of money. And so that seems to symbolize different amounts of the different abilities and gifts that God has given to each individual. Here, though, each servant is given the same amount. So it seems to represent a deposit that is given to each servant. Now, here is where it's helpful to draw some parallels, some lines between the parable to the disciples and the disciples then on to us, helping us understand what Jesus is getting at with each of the characters and what they're doing. So if it's not clear already, the nobleman king in this parable represents Jesus. Uh, Heading off to a far country to receive a kingdom before coming back represents the time between the ascension of Jesus to heaven after his resurrection and his second coming, right? That's the the time frame that we're talking about. 
the ten servants that he entrusts Amina to are disciples of Jesus, and each servant is given one mina. Now, Amina is roughly equivalent to 100 days' wages for a labourer, or in today's Australian market, roughly $14,500. But the mina in the parable isn't just literally a sum of money. The sum of money represents the deposit given to every believer, the gospel. Here's what I mean. You see in verse 13 that the servants are told, engage in business until I come. So the mina that they are given represents the king's business. What is his business? What is the king's business? Well, Jesus has already told us himself uh, in the Gospel of Luke. Right? From the end of last week, Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. What is the king's business? Put simply, the gospel. To engage in business, as we'll see in a moment, is to steward the gospel, to share the gospel with unbelievers, to pass it on to future generations, to live for it, to make it more widely known, to make sure that the gospel goes out and grows in the world. And then finally, there's one more group, a group of people in this parable known as enemies. So in verse 14, we meet a group of citizens who hated the nobleman king. And so they send a delegation, a group of people to follow the nobleman king to object to his coronation as king. Now, what's going on here? Uh, Jesus, it seems, is picking up on what was a well-known story at the time of the telling of this parable. So we're here in Luke chapter 19, verse 11. Uh, to 27, we've got to rewind the clock a little bit, about 30 years to when Jesus was a really young boy. Remember a, na- a man by the name of Herod, Herod the Great, King Herod. This was the king who the three wise men at the time of Christmas uh, came and spoke to about, you know, who is this new king that we may worship him. This was the same king who ordered the death and the slaughter of all the two boys two years and under in the town of Bethlehem, Right? Herod was not a popular man, uh, and, he, um, and he did all of that to protect his throne. So concerned was, uh, was he with his throne that when he died, he willed that his son would take over as king. But because Rome was in charge of everything, it's not as though his son Archelaus could just simply take the throne for himself. He had to go to Caesar. He had to go to a faraway country to receive the kingdom, to to get approval from Caesar to be the king. Now, if Herod was not popular, Herod's son was even less popular. And so the Jews of the time hated him. They sent a delegation of 50 people to follow Herod's son to Rome. And before Caesar, they appealed to Caesar, do not make this man our king. And so Caesar said, no, I will. Uh, I'll give him a go. And then when they came back, Herod's son slaughtered these 50 men. And we get a little echo of that in verse 27 of our passage. Notice, though, what we learn about the enemies of the king. Take a closer look at verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Jesus might be drawing on this infamous story about Herod's son uh, and what happened at his coronation, but the king in this parable is nothing like Herod's son, right? The king is Jesus, the man who we have met so far, who has been nothing but compassionate 
and kind and loving. The king who welcomes helpless bludgers like children into his kingdom. The king who has shown mercy and grace. Now, the enemies here in, in chapter 19, verse 14, hate the king, but they have no good reason to hate him. And listen again to what they say. We do not want this man to reign over us. Friends, this is the very essence, the very heart, the very core idea of what the Bible calls sin. See, sin is not just about breaking God's rules and it's not about those naughty things in life that God doesn't want us to do because he doesn't want us to have fun. Sin, at its very heart, is saying to God and to his king, I do not want you to reign over me. I am the king or the queen. You are not. I am the only one who controls my life. You do not. Sin is rebellion against God as our king, as our creator, as our maker. How many of us treat God like that? How many of us say to him, I will rule my life my own way. I am the one in control. You back off. But notice the inevitable at the start of verse 15. The citizens hated this king. They did not want him to reign. But notice at the start of this verse 15 that the king returns having received the kingdom. See, it doesn't matter whether these enemies hated the king. It doesn't matter that they didn't want him to be king. The king is the king. The king receives his kingdom. The king will return. Friends, some of you here today, and some others may not be sure whether Jesus is your king. There might be some here who know that Jesus is not your king. You might believe him. You might say you want to follow him. But is he really the king of your life? Or are you still the one in control? Essentially, do you treat Jesus as though he's a passenger in the backseat of your car and you are the one in control and driving in the direction? Or is he the one actually in the driver's seat? Because if you're not sure, if you're not sure if Jesus is really the king of your life, then this parable is giving a warning. Have a look at verse 27 again. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is a very graphic picture of judgment. The enemies of God hate him, and so he will treat them the same in kind. He will judge and he will condemn. But anyone who trusts and follows Jesus will not find an angry king but a Jesus that we've already met in Luke's gospel, the king who will also show extravagant generosity to those who are faithful. That's what you see in, next in verse 15. The king returns from a faraway land. He, he returns and he calls his servants to account. Have a look, uh, pick it up again with me from verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. 
And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to them, and you are to be over five cities. The ten servants called to attention. They line up together. And beginning with the first, the king goes down the line to find out what they have done. And the first servant has done extraordinarily well. He's been able to turn one mina into ten. But notice, notice that it wasn't the servant who did the work. Have a look at verse 15. Notice how, uh, 16, and notice how it's phrased. Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. It's the mina that's been at work. Through the faithfulness of this servant, the gospel has gone out and returned with 1,000% profit. The servant isn't the one responsible for the tenfold growth, but he has been faithful to the task and ensured its growth. See, this is the way it is with gospel ministry and service. We are not responsible for the fruit. I am not responsible for the fruit. God is the one who gives the growth. We are merely like this servant who are called faithfully to steward and proclaim the gospel as we can. Yet, yet, also see how the king responds generously to this prophet. First notice what the king says. He says, well done, good servant. Wow. Who here lives for approval? We all do. We all live for approval. We all, it doesn't matter, even if you say the opinions of other people don't matter, no, we all live for approval. We all live for some form of encouragement that we have done a good job and it matters who that comes from. If I cook a meal and my kids say to me that it was yummy, Oh, that warms my heart, right? But if I cook that same meal and it's to my friends and they say that it was delicious, wow, that's super nice and really encouraging. Now imagine that same meal and in my home is a Michelin judge and he says that my food is worth three Michelin stars. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Who wouldn't be chuffed with that? And here is the judge of judges, the king of kings, hand on shoulder, telling his servant, well done. Friends, whose approval are you living for? Whose opinion and approval matters to you the most? And then notice how the king rewards his good and faithful servant. His single mina has made 10 minas more. Uh, The servant, he took $14,500 and he made $145,000, which is pretty good. But look at the reward the king gives him. Verse 17, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. Imagine that. You turn $15,000 into $150,000, and now you get to be responsible for 10 cities like Singapore, KL, London, Sydney. This reward from the king is not proportional to the work that was achieved. It is extravagant, gracious generosity from the king. Remember, the servant was simply faithful. The mina produced the results, but the king rewards in kind. 
and the reward exceeds expectations. This tells us so much about what the king is like. He is not stingy. He is not mean. He's not frugal. He is kind and extravagantly generous. And we've seen this before in the Gospel of Luke. We saw this in the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost sons. What happens when one sinner repents? All of heaven rejoices. It is extravagant. And that is what God is like. See, on a couple of nights ago on Friday night, I watched the Sydney Harbour fireworks for the new year. It was glorious. But that is such a small party compared to what God will do when one sinner repents. All right, that, those fireworks from, uh, from Sydney cost $6.5 million. That is pocket change to the generosity of the king to his faithful servants. Now, the reward is, uh, itself isn't just about the cities. Far, far more important than the, uh, is the authority over these cities. Right? These servants become viceroys. They become officials who run these cities on behalf of the king. So that means that they will have a close relationship with their king and with the king himself, always having access to the king, able to speak with him and linger in his presence. See, the reward isn't just the cities they control, but the privileged access they have to Jesus forever. Heaven, heaven is not about what we receive, whether it's the white robes or the crowns. It's about what we will become, friends and companions of our extravagantly generous king. The king turns to the second servant. One mina has been made into five a 500% profit. His reward is also extravagant. Responsibility over five cities. You'll notice that there's a different a reward here for these servants. There are different amounts. And it's worth pointing out, Jesus will, on that final day, reward people differently for their faithfulness and fruitfulness. To some, he will give more, and to others, he will give less. But that often leads to a big question, which is, always, which is quite often asked of me, won't that make people jealous? If some people are rewarded more than others, won't we regret or be jealous of what we have compared to our own? And the answer is no. Because we will be free from the sin of jealousy. There will be no sin of jealousy in heaven. We will rejoice at how the king has been generous to each other. We will not cry that one person gets more rewards than others. We will rejoice for each other. Your cup will overflow. Everyone's cup will overflow. And some of those cups are bigger than others. Different rewards motivate us, should motivate us to keep being faithful because the reward, remember, is deeper friendship with Jesus. Now, the first two servants have done such a good job. But then we, before we move on to the third servant, I think it would be good to ask a question why these two servants have been faithful to the king while he was away. Uh, school holidays at the moment, my kids are off from school. And the other day, Steph uh, took the kids out. It was a couple of days ago. They, Steph took the kids out for a lunch with family. And I was at home preparing this sermon. And when the kids got back, they jumped out of the car. They, they, 
busted into the office and they were rolling around on the soft carpet, which they love to do, and they were excitedly chatting about everything about their day. And then they turned to me and asked, Daddy, were you playing Nintendo Switch all day at home? <laughs> what? <laughs> My kids thought that when I was home alone, while they were away, waiting for their return, all I was doing was playing the Nintendo Switch. No, I wasn't. Right. What is it that motivated these servants to be faithful and not just play all day until the king returned? Now, it's not explicit in this passage, but I think it's crucial and important for what will motivate us to keep being faithful. Because at the heart of it, is that these servants are faithful to the king because the king is supreme. Unlike the opposition, they are satisfied with him, with having him as their king. And so because the king is supreme to them and because they are satisfied with having him as their king, their pleasure is to live to serve the king. And so when they appear before him, they are excited to show what has been achieved by their work. Friends, you are not going to faithfully live for Jesus if he is not supreme in your life. So the joy of having Jesus as king is what motivates us. And you're going to struggle with faithfulness if other things compete for your great satisfaction in him. There's a final warning in the passage, too, as we come to the third servant. See, things are not looking good when we get to the third servant. Verse 20. Then another came saying... Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. So here's this third servant. Instead of putting his mina to use, instead of stewarding it carefully for the king, he wraps it up in a tissue and he tucks it away under his mattress. Why did he do that? Verse 21, he was afraid of the king. Why was he afraid of the king? Carry on in verse 21. Because he believed the king was a severe man, someone who would steal all the profits the servant would make, right? The servant is treating the king as though he's some communist dictator, unfairly living off the work of others. And that is utter slander. That is blasphemy. It's completely false. The way the king has already interacted with the first and the second servant should completely blow these false allegations out of the water. The king is nothing like what the servant believes at all. But okay, the king says, let me take your words of what you've said and I'll, let, me, let me turn it back on you. So in verse 23, he says, if you really believe that I was like this, if you really believe that I was doing like all of this stuff that you believe about me, why didn't you do something with it? You did nothing. You could have put it into the bank and let it sit there and gain interest. That would have been bare minimum. Our king is not severe and exacting. He's not demanding. He could have just put it in the bank and let it sit there and just collect interest. A couple of years ago, oh, not a couple of years ago, I'm talking like 20 years ago, that's 
bit more than a couple. Uh, I opened up an IGN account, and I still have it. And the reason why I opened up this IGN account is that they gave you a $200 bonus for signing up. And I never put any money in it. And 20 years later, it has $215. All right. I haven't done anything with it. I get taxed on that too. I think I get taxed like 20 cents a year on the interest. Right? It's doing nothing, but it's collecting interest. This, that's what this guy could have done. And notice what he calls, what the king calls the servant in verse 22. Wicked. And he is condemned for his beliefs. You know, there's a little bit of debate uh, as to whether or not this servant, this third servant, is a, a believer or a non-believer. If, if he's a believer, then it's a situation like 1 Corinthians 3 that Marilyn read out for us, right? He's building with stone, uh, sticks and hay, and that the fire, fire of judgment, you know, all of that will be burned up, but this guy will still be saved. I think, though, I think, though, that this guy is not a believer because he is called wicked. He believes false and slanderous things about the king, and he is condemned for his beliefs. As we know in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then in the final move, the king takes this, this third servant's mina away from him, and then he gives it to the man who has ten, to the surprise of everyone. Verse 25. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And this is interesting what Jesus says here. The basic principle from here, Jesus here, is saying that he's saying that faithfulness will be rewarded with even more. If you are proving yourself to be faithful with what you have, more will be given to you to be faithful with. If you are faithful, then Jesus will be generous towards you. But on the flip side... If you are unfaithful, then what you think you have, the gospel, will be taken away from you. Please listen to that warning at the end. Unfaithful servants will have the gospel that saves them taken away. At the start of today, everyone believed the kingdom was about to be revealed on earth. They thought Jesus the king was coming up to set up shop, but Jesus tells this parable reminding them that there will be a delay. There will come a time when he will go far away, he will not be seen. His enemies might oppose him, but they will lose in the end. And those who say they follow Jesus must remain faithful in sharing the gospel until he returns. So as we begin our year in 2022, we have this parable before us, three groups of people in this parable, three ways in which we are to respond. Right? First, I want to speak to those here who are not Christians, or maybe you're not sure if you're a Christian. What Jesus has to say to you here today is really full on, and I don't say it with glee or with joy. But Jesus is warning all of us that if you continue in rebellion against him, he will judge. You see, sin is not just against someone. Sin is a rebellion against an infinitely holy, infinitely perfect, and infinitely beautiful being. 
And so the only right and fair and just punishment is wrath and condemnation. So if you came here today and you know that you're not a believer, if you're not certain or if you're not sure if you're a believer, well, this isn't the news I wanted to leave with you today. I don't want you to walk out of here. I, I don't want you to walk out of here thinking that the message from Jesus for you in 2022 is that you are going to be judged and you can only expect wrath. The message you want to walk away with is that God has made a way for his wrath to be satisfied. And he has done it in a way that his justice is also not compromised. And the way is found in Jesus himself. The very king who slaughtered his enemies is the one in which you find refuge. The king who said earlier that he has come to be rejected and die in our place. The death that we deserve for our sins, Jesus takes instead of us. And he is raised back to life as the victorious king, the king who will receive his kingdom, the king who's currently gone away but will one day return. And if you come to faith in Jesus, if you come to trust him for your forgiveness, then you will find a life of serving him and a rich, extravagant eternal rewards as well. Everything in this life is, is going to fade one day. But Jesus and his kingdom will live forever. See, a Christian is not someone who has got their life together and is a good person. A Christian is someone who has trusted Jesus, who recognizes that he is the rightful king. Would you do that today? Next, I want to speak to the people here in church who may or may not be aware that they are the third servant. Maybe you've been in church for a while. Maybe you've grown up in church. But you haven't made a true and real and lasting commitment to Jesus. Right? You've enjoyed the benefits of church life, but you aren't a servant of Christ himself. Is that you? Then please listen to the warning again. Heed the warning. The wicked servant in this parable believed false things about the king, and then he acted on those false beliefs. So let me ask you, what false beliefs do you have about King Jesus? Have you grown up in church under the false belief that Jesus is not generous and kind? Maybe you believe that he's really just kind of not worth your worship and commitment. There are other things in life which seemingly are better, more tangible, offer greater satisfaction and meaning. Or maybe you live with the lie that it's just too much effort to get to know Jesus better and understand him more. So all you do is rely on the weekly sermons, 45 minutes out of 128 hours in your week, 45 minutes to just kind of lift you along. And it's been so long since you've desired to live for him or to please him with your actions and your motives. It's just too hard. So you settle for no effort. Friends, if that sounds familiar, then please listen. The gospel of Luke has been preached to you these past few months. Jesus has been presented as glorious, as awesome and worthy of our allegiance. And if you are not interested, then it's not just the preachers that you're treating as fools, but you're saying that God is a fool and you're saying that God is a liar. 
and that his, his word to you is like nothing. That is not worth it. And that is a slander. It is a slander against God in your attitude and your motivations. I know that some here have an inertia problem. I know there are some here who are kind of stuck in this perpetual loop that you want to be committed, you say you want to be more committed, and then you don't show up. You don't appear. Your attendance is patchy. Your actions do not match your words. Jesus puts before you today a big carrot and a very big stick. And a big stick warning that if you do nothing, if you, if you remain in this perpetual non-committal cycle, then you may have the gospel taken away from you. The gospel that you claim that you want to be committed to is potentially going to be taken away from you. But there's also a massive carrot encouraging you to live for Jesus, to serve him, to steward the gospel you believe. Is it going to be enough for you to change? Well, there are some hard words there in the passage for the non-believer and the third servant types. But the final word today is a big word of encouragement. A massive encouragement to the believer. Keep being faithful. Remember, the task isn't to multiply the meaning yourself. It's to be faithful with it. Your job is to, isn't to win converts. It's to share the gospel in whatever way you can. God will take that and grow the gospel as he sees fit. You know, next year we've got Jordan sitting over there. He's going to start ministry training. I remember when I first started ministry training, my father-in-law asked me, what are your KPIs? Right? What are your, going to be your key performance in, uh, indexes, well, indications, right? Is it how many converts you have per week? Is it how many baptisms you have every month? That's got none of that. God will take the gospel and he will grow it. And your task is to be faithful with it. And God will keep a powerful record better than we can. He will keep a track of all of the fruit and all of the faithfulness, whether it be in your life or in the generations to come. And so you, you have a conversation with someone here at church, right? And the Spirit prompts you. Ask how that person's going and pray for them. So you ask how they're going and you pray for them. And that encouragement spurs that person on to keep being faithful. That is fruit and faithfulness that God will remember and reward. It's like for the fathers here who come home after a massive and physically, emotionally tiring day. But instead of plonking down in front of the TV or sitting in front of the computer games to de-stress, you choose instead to prep Bible study for the coming weekend. Or you take up you take out one of your children for a father-son, father-daughter time, you know, a cheap dessert at Macca's to build your relationship with this child and pray for them. Well, that is faithfulness that God will remember and reward. And for the mothers, when the endless things on your to-do list just keep resetting every morning, you start ticking them off, you go to bed, and then all the ticks are taken away because you've got to redo it again but you persist, you persevere, you serve and you serve and you serve with little thanks from your family. And despite the exhaustion, you prioritise prayer for your family, for, for church. 
You pray for our missionaries, and then you stumble into bed completely spent. Well, that is faithfulness that God will remember and reward. How about for those here who are suffering? For those here who are weary and heavy laden? It's when you persevere through the pain and the valleys. When you keep coming to Jesus to know him and to rest in him and to find your peace and your comfort in him personally and in the promises that he gives to you. Well, that is a faithfulness that God will never forget and will reward. Remember, we are not responsible for how much fruit happens. And part of the reason why is because it's sometimes really hard to measure the fruit uh, because the effects of that faithfulness can run long and deep for generations that we may never be able to trace. John Flavel was a minister in New England, a wonderful evangelist, and he worked really hard at his preaching, really long and hard. One year, a 15-year-old boy by the name of Luke Short was listening to one of his sermons, and it was powerful, and it was piercing. And Luke sat there and did nothing. In fact, decades later, the sermon still had no effect on Luke's life. Flavel long died after that. If he had measured Flavel's fruitfulness, uh, it would have been hard to have seen. But then at the age of 100... Luke Short was out in his field plowing, and as he sat resting and reflecting on his life, he recalled the sermon he had heard as a 15-year-old boy, and the horror of dying under the curse of God was impressed upon him as he meditated on the words he had heard 85 years earlier, and he converted to Christ then and there. Luke Short's gravestone reads, He lies a babe in grace, aged three years, who, according to nature, aged 106. Friends, the seed we may sow in faithfulness may lie dormant in the soil until we are buried with it too, and then it will spring up. But God will know, and he will remember, and he will reward Friends, there were 10 minas given out to 10 servants by this king. We met three of them, two faithful, one wicked. Do you see yourself lined up with six others in that lineup? And as the king comes down that line and he looks at you, what will he find? We've all been given the mina. How are we investing it? 2021 is over. 2022 has just begun. But really... We're in the final hour. The king is coming. What will you show for your investments? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Firstly, we thank you that it's a word of warning. And so we pray for those among us who have not named Christ as king, or even for those who do name Christ as King but are not truly living to serve him, we pray, Father, for your grace and your mercy. Soften hearts, help people to hear Jesus and to bow before him as King and to live for him and serve him. Help us to not have this message water over us, but help it to be implanted deeply 
to bear fruit and to bear uh, gospel living. Father, we thank you too that this is a word of encouragement from your son. For those of us who have been living for Jesus, help us to keep living for him, to keep plotting one step forward at a time, to live faithfully for him in whatever station of life where we are. Help us to work out, give us wisdom and discernment to know how to live for Jesus and to live to magnify the gospel. Help us to look forward solely to that day when we will hear those words. Well done, good servant. For we ask this for your glory and we ask this for our eternal joy in Jesus' most beautiful name. Amen.